Atapai katoa, no mai haere mai. Call Karen Hay Tokawingawa. Good morning and welcome. My name is Karen Hay. Well, it's a perfect day for a writers' festival. It's been a great weekend. Instead of being curled up with a good book, we are curled up with our favourite authors. So strap yourselves in. We're here for the book a ride. Three people who have had the extreme pleasure, because I imagine it must be, of winning the Booker Prize. The Booker Prize is awarded annually for the best novel written in English and published in the United Kingdom or Ireland. It was first awarded in 1969, so it's now 54 years old, uh, although I think there have been 57 winners uh, altogether. The last head count was 57 winners. The prize money in 1969 was £5,000, and it's now £50,000, which translates to about 107,000 New Zealand dollars, so that would come in handy, wouldn't it? Uh, and like the Ockhams here, or the Montanas as they used to be, the Booker Prize was named after the company who sponsored the award. Uh, they were originally called Booker McConnell, and they are um, a British wholesale food company and a subsidiary of Tesco supermarkets. And then along came the hedge fund investment company, very rich company, the Mann Group, who got the naming rights, but they very wisely opted to retain the name Booker and added the man at the front. So for quite a few confusing years, it became the Mann Booker Prize. And I guess the Mann Prize wouldn't have gone down so well, so <laughs> it worked out for Booker because they managed to retain the name even though it's now run by a charitable foundation. And the Booker Prize has been awarded to the likes of Iris Murdoch, Salman Rushdie, and Kerry Hume who won it in 1985 for her debut novel, The Bone People. And it's undoubtedly one of the world's most prestigious literary prizes. But it has had its share of controversy in 1972, John Berger, he won the Booker for his novel, G, and he said in his acceptance speech, I have to turn the prize against itself. He denounced the sponsor, Booker McConnell's exploitation of the sugar industry in the Caribbean, saying it had uh, directly resulted in the extreme poverty of the region and had forced hundreds of thousands of West Indians to emigrate to Britain as migrant workers. So he gave half of what was the prize money at the time, 5,000 pounds, to the London-based uh, Black Panther movement, uh, and said he planned to use the other half to fund his next project on the migrant workers of Europe. And in 2001, A.L. Kennedy, the Scots novelist, she's also a stand-up uh, comic, among other things, she was a judge for the Booker in 1996. She said the winner was chosen by who knows who, who's sleeping with who, who's selling drugs to who, who's married to who, and whose turn it is. So it looks like we have a lot to cover off with you three. <laughs> and we have been sprinkled with a bit of fairy dust this morning to have these three winning authors with us in, on the same day, in the same room. And uh, while we can be certain that there's no magic formula for winning the Booker, what we can be sure of is that you do not win the Booker Prize by chance. So I'll introduce the, what would you be, the Bookerettes or the Bookerites? Maybe you're the Bookerinis. <laughs> in order of the year that they won it, a decade ago in 2013, Eleanor Catton won the Booker Prize for the Luminaries. Three years later, in 2016, Bernadine Evaristo won the Booker for her novel, Girl, Woman, Other. And the newest addition to the Booker alumni is Sheehan Karinda Talaka, who won it last year, 2022, for The Seven Moons of Marley Almeida. I mentioned um, 1972's winner, John Berger, in my introduction, and in his acceptance speech, uh, he said he found the competitiveness of prizes distasteful. And in the case of this prize, he wasn't completely negative, he was positive about winning it. In the case of this prize, he said, the deliberately publicized suspense, the speculation of the writers concerned as though they were horses, 
The whole emphasis on winners and losers is false and it's out of place in the context of literature. So, Shihan, let's start with you because you're wearing the crown at the moment. Mm. And the sash, yes, <laughs> for the next six months. Do you have any problems with winners and losers in literature? Problems with winning? Um, all awards are bullshit. Um, Oscars, Grammys, BAFTAs, Emmys, they're all bullshit until you win one, <laughs> right? And then, yeah, maybe the Booker and the Pulitzer is as well, but this year the judges got it right. And, um, <laughs> and they absolutely uh, did. <laughs> I agree. Um, but um, because I also come from, uh, you know, up till October I worked in advertising, um, and I guess if my next book flops, I'll be back working in advertising. And I, I think there's no more industry, maybe movies and books, but uh, advertising is obsessed with awards. And I noticed, uh, and you know, you do your normal day-to-day -day work for these brands, but then you do these little scammy awards. You go down to Don's Pie Shop and say, hey man, we'll give you a free print ad and radio spot to win this award. And so, and this happened a lot in the 90s. Um, you had these scam things that win at Cannes and all of that. And you had these old school creative directors saying, well, you know, that's all nonsense, the advertising about the real work, until they win an award. <laughs> when they win the award, it's on the newspapers and they put it Cannes winning uh, agency presents and all of that. So the thing is, these are flawed. I mean, there, there's plenty of examples. Um, you know, Hitchcock never won uh, for best director. Though Ben Affleck has um, the Beatles won one Grammy, but Post Malone has 15. There's there's all these examples, <laughs> and even within the book, I mean, many years, you know, I've always followed the Booker, and um, sometimes there's stuff in the long list. Even this year, there was the Colony and Maps of Our Spectacular Bodies, which I thought would go all the way. And a lot of the time, yeah, there's stuff in the short list. You think, oh, that, that's that's the book, and then the thing wins, and it's like, oh, how did that thing win? And so, yeah, there, there are all these debates then. But the thing is. It does have meaning. Um, it does have meaning. Even being on a long list, being on a short list, and obviously winning, we can talk about what that means. But it's interesting about the horse race thing, because uh, you know, they were betting on the Booker Prize. I, I guess the, the Brits bet on everything. And, what were your um, odds? Um, I, was, I don't understand odds, even though I've written <laughs> about a gambler, but I was 16 to 1, which doesn't mean I was the favorite. 16, I think. 16 to 1. Yeah, so I, I had, and I think a few people had a punt on me and made some money. Um, I was actually thinking <laughs> of uh, betting on the other five, and uh, so then, you know, you're a winner either way. But, <laughs> but then my friend pointed out, you idiot, you're going to put down 200 quid, get 40 quid back, and you'll be a loser anyway. And, so, and also it sends out mixed uh, messages to the universe, so I didn't. <laughs> but, but, you know... I, I've, you know, I've won a few awards, but I've also not won more awards than I've won. And I'm always, when I get long-listed, short-listed, I'm aware, and you say it's, it's not to do with chance, uh, but all those books on the short-list, on the long-list, and the ones that didn't make it are quality books. And so when I went into it, yeah, it was a dice roll. So I always looked at it as, yeah, you could roll a six, but you're mo most likely to not. So having said all that, um, I have no problem with winning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about you, Eleanor? Did you feel like you were you know, in a horse race? Yeah, it was. I, I found the period between um, when the long list was first published and then the, the ceremony extremely stressful. I just, yeah, I kind of look back on that time as just this kind of horrible kind of three, I think it was three months, two or three months. Um, partly I think it's that you're trying to emotionally prepare yourself for so many different possible eventualities. Winning or so, um, losing. <clears throat> but also it's losing to every different person on, on the shortlist, which would feel very different, yeah. you know, or, or every different person on the long list, you know. Um, and I, I, I found that kind of, just to kind of uh, spreading myself between all these different possibilities and kind of emotionally preparing myself, very, very stressful, I, I suppose. Um, I, I like the Booker Prize for the conversation it generates every year, and I, I think that sometimes conversation can be useful even when, when you're kind of, when you feel that the wrong person has won, or you feel that, 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 that something hasn't been valued that should have been valued, that conversation is itself contributing to a, a, a healthy literary culture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, sometimes I worry that we're kind of, we're becoming a bit prize-obsessed, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, and, and Benedine? 
Yeah, I think, I think there are always winners and losers in literature. There always have been. You know, there are, there are some writers who get a lot of investment in their writing and who get massive um, promotion of their, their books and their works. And they've all, their you know, debut authors, for example, they will have a huge advantage over, over people who may start out with a tiny publisher and get literally no attention. So, so I think we're not, you know, it, it's not an equal world for writers anyway. And I think prizes, there are some prizes that are about raising the profile of certain kinds of literature. And so they do more than just celebrate an individual writer. There are two that I can mention. One is the Kane Prize for African Fiction, which I think it began in 1999. And it was to raise awareness of African fiction, and it's a short story prize. And since then, so many African writers have, have risen to prominence and been celebrated, who weren't celebrated before. It was very hard for African writers to get published before this prize came along. And I can say, that because I've been around a long time, that that, that started to change when the Kane Prize came into being. And so there would be a shortlist and a winner, and that shortlist would get a lot of attention, they'd all be flown to the UK, there'd be a big reception and so on. So that's one prize. The other one is the Women's Prize for Fiction, um, which I've, I chaired a couple of years ago. That was set up because, what year was it? I can't remember the year, it might have been 1992, and there were no women on the shortlist of the booker. And Kate Moss, with an E, the novelist, she said, I've had enough, you know, let's set up a women's prize and celebrate women's fiction. And that's what they've continued to do ever since. And of course, so many writers, women writers, have benefited from that prize, being long-listed, being short-listed, and also winning it. And then you've got the Booker Prize, which is about celebrating an individual or two, um, and in my case, and uh, <laughs> it's... Um, as, as Eleanor said, it raises the profile of literature. Every year, it focuses attention on literature. And writers who are long-listed and short-listed and ultimately win it, they often get the kind of attention they might not have got for their books. And I would say the Booker Prize has changed a lot in the last few years. It's changed in terms of the kinds of people they have judging it. Because when you look at the Booker Prize in its early years, it was a kind of white male Oxbridge elite who were behind it, running it, and, and judging it. A book such as mine would never have won the prize if those people were still behind the booker and still judging it. And now the judging panels are very diverse, representative of the world, and so on. And so it's, you know, it is a bit winner-takes-all. I'm sure you felt that. You know, suddenly, from one day to the next, the spotlight is on you, and there are so many, I think, amazing things that come to you. But at the same time, it does, it becomes a focal point for literature, as I think the Women's Prize does. Well, let's talk about the night in question. It's not held in one place, it, it's been held in all sorts of different venues, but uh, acceptance speeches. And Eleanor, I have to say, you look terrified when you <laughs> won. <laughs> you look absolutely terrified. Were yeah. you? <clears throat> well, we'd, we'd been told to write a, a speech just in case, but superstitiously, I had hidden it in the bottom of my handbag, because I thought that, I don't know really why I did it, I just felt that if it was too accessible, then that would curse my chances. <laughs> and, um, and so when they read out my name, I was like, oh shit, I'm gonna, and I kind of just disappeared, and every, there was a spotlight on me, all these video cameras, and I was just kind of scrabbling around you my, find my, it. my, uh, my <laughs> handbag. Um, but what I didn't realize, I'm, I'm quite glad I didn't, I didn't know this at the time, but very, a, a lot of people know in the room already who, who has won, because they tell all of the journalists right before oh, the, the, the ceremony, before you all sit down to dinner. And um, it, every person on the shortlist is at a different table, and there is one journalist at every table. So there was one person at my table who... was who, on your table? Uh, it was uh, Claire Armitstead, I think, from The Guardian. Um, somebody later told me that they they looked up into the lighting rig, we were at the Guildhall in London, and saw that there was a, a, a spotlight had been positioned above, uh, kind of <laughs> above me. So I was extremely well lit compared to everybody else at my table. And they, so they had figured it out early. But I was, I was quite glad I, 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 didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't know that in advance. Uh, that would have been the longest minute ever. Was it a minute it took you almost to find those notes? It was it, a long time. It, it felt like that. Yeah, I remember getting up on stage and I, because they, they announced it right before 
the 10 o'clock news so it can air on the BBC. And I remember getting up there and I just felt like I'd grown about four extra teeth. <laughs> I felt like I had just too many teeth in my mouth. You were grinning. It was, it, was, it was very difficult to talk. I remember I started speaking and my voice just didn't, I said, oh, thank you, or something like that. And I thought, that's what my voice sounds like. I'm gonna have to, I've got a whole speech to read, you know. And you had the Queen Consort, of course, the Queen now who was presented you with your prize? Yeah, yeah, we, we were given um, very strict instructions about how to address her. We had to call her ma'am. They kept on saying it has to be ma'am as in ham. I, it, it really messed with my head because I was thinking, oh God, I'm gonna go up there and just gonna say hello ham. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call her ham. Um, in, in the end, I actually didn't, I, I was too worried, so I didn't even ad address her. I did, did you curtsy? She I wasn't. Oh, um, oh, no, she, oh, she, she, oh, she, she wasn't your yeah. one. Oh, um, Shehan, you got booted off, you, you almost. They, I would have thought you would have had at least 10 minutes, and, and um, suddenly they were sorry, that's enough. So we were told one minute, so we didn't have one minute to rummage through handbags. We were told, uh, <laughs> in the event that you win, uh, you have one minute and uh, don't hug the queen. Uh, I broke those, uh, well, the queen hugged me, so I, I, I wasn't going to snub. But um, yeah, it was one minute, and I was told beforehand, and like I said, I went in actually quite relaxed, because I thought one in six, it's probably not going to happen. Ours, yours happened in the Guild Hall, right? So, that's, so ours was at the Roundhouse in Camden, which is like a rock and roll venue, I remember back Suitable in the day. though, don't you play the guitar? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I saw <laughs> Kasabian playing there, so, but it was obviously decked out to look quite classy, and Dua Lipa was at the ceremony this time. Uh. Um, and my agent was just mortified. He goes, what is this? It's so vulgar. Um, who's this Dupa Lupa? I don't know. <laughs> and, and he told me, um, well, I guess it'd be nice if you win, but you're not going to win. I got better advice from Ramesh Gunasekar, the great Sri Lankan writer who's a mentor and friend, and he said, and he's been nominated a few times, and he said, don't drink too much because uh, you're going to make a fool of yourself if you lose and maybe a bigger fool of yourself if you, if you win. Um, but yeah, they do tell you to prepare the speech. So yeah, I had mine in my uh, coat pocket, just like a few uh, notes. Um, and so, yeah, the judge, uh, Neil McGregor, usually they draw it out. This time he just went for it. And uh, so then I knew it was going to happen. So I think it was just a, a blur. I knew, okay, I had my speech and I thought one minute's ridiculous. But I think it was broadcast live um, on BBC Three or whatever. And the 10 o'clock news cannot happen at 10.01 or 10.02. Um, but yeah, when I went for it, I think Samira Ahmed was the, she kept butting in because she realized I was rambling. Stop, but, please, stop. Um, yes, can you stop? <laughs> uh, but I did want to speak in Sinhalese and Tamil. Uh, and um, I managed to get that out. Um, you know, my Tamil was pretty basic, but I had a few phrases. So yeah, I managed to do all of that. I don't know if I, I I think I took seven minutes rather than one, but yeah. Dua Lipa got 10 minutes, so I mean, what, what the hell? So, so what were you actually saying in Tamil? So in Sinhalese, I just said, you know, this is a victory for, for all of us. I wrote this book for Sri Lankans, and, um, and I had to make a cricket reference. We just lost to Namibia in the one. I said, you know, <laughs> we lost to Namibia, but it's okay. We can still qualify and maybe win the T20 World Cup. And... <laughs> and, and uh, so I think they were, the BBC were really worried because I could have been swearing or inciting riots, <laughs> especially what was happening in Sri Lanka. But that's all I said in Tamil. I just, just had a simple phrase saying, you know, let's all share our stories as Sri Lankans and let's read each other's stories. But yeah, I managed to get all of that out before um, I was shut down. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Bernadine, what about you? You shared the stage, of course, with Margaret Atwood, yeah. so you both spoke. Yeah, I also had Claire Almitstedt at my table. Oh, isn't that interesting? Oh, yeah, interesting. Oh, Maybe she's the lucky... Do you have her at your table? <laughs> no, I had a table? Financial Times journalist oh. who also was asking me strange questions during dinner. He goes, well, was that set during 89? And, and you wrote it when? And he was, like, interviewing me while I was, like, nervously eating. <laughs> and so I think, yeah, you're right. Definitely there were few people in that room who knew it. But, um, yeah, you, you don't get the heads up at all. You don't, know, but you do know in advance that you're on the long list. Mm. So they tell you, you get notified probably three weeks or something, I think, before it's announced. So you know you're on the long list. Oh, I, I got notified the day off. Oh, did you? Yeah, I had a couple of hours. Oh, notice. maybe that's yeah. changed. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then I'm pretty sure I was notified that I was on the short list as well. Um, and, then, and then there's a whole... Um, huge fanfare around it and it culminates at the Guildhall which is this incredible medieval hall in London and when I was there we were having the reception so there's a reception that goes on for about an hour while the judges were making the decisions in a room 
literally next door to the reception. Oh. And then you go in to the banquet, which probably lasts about three hours. And there are all kinds of things happening, and it's, it's very, very buzzy. And people were saying to me that there's a, you know, if you're seated in a certain place in the room, then the chances are you're going to win. So everybody's looking to see where people are seated. <laughs> and also where the cameras are although the cameras are mobile. And so I was seated at the front, but then so was Margaret Atwood at the table next to me. Um, so that wasn't a coincidence, right? So we were both there. And um, so then they have the, uh, the dinner, which is a nightmare, because you can't drink. You don't really want to talk to anybody. It's I desperately wanted to win it. Um, unashamedly, I wanted to win the prize. And so I had a lot invested in it. And, and then Peter Florence, the chair, makes the announcement at about 10 o'clock, and he said, we've gone against the rules, and there are two winners. And everybody was, like, gasping. Because the last time that happened was, I think, in 1992, when Michael and Archie won it, and Barry Unsworth, and they changed the rules. And you weren't supposed to do that. Um, and, and then he said Margaret Atwood's name, and her name is A. Atwood, so she was the first person on the list and everyone was waiting to see who the second person would be, and then it was me. And then I just swore. I just, <laughs> I just swore. I couldn't help myself. What did you say? I, I'm not even going to tell you. I was just swearing. I was just like, oh my God, oh my God. I was so, so shocked and delighted. And then, and then she got up, and I got up, and then we walked onto the stage. Um, I think we had walked on hand in hand. Nice. And then she handed the podium to me. Um, she said a few words, and then she handed it to me, which was very generous. And then I thought, I have to say that I'm the first black woman to win this in 50 years, because I felt it was a really important thing. And a lot of people don't notice that these kind of distinctions. Um, and yes, and then I, I kind of had a list of people I needed to thank and did all that. And that so was good. Yeah. No notes? No, but I'd, I'd memorised it, okay. yeah. <laughs> just in case. Eleanor, did you unashamedly want to win? Yeah, yeah, I think of course, of course, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, well, I, the, the reason why I paused, I was, I'm, I'm not sure if I was very good at the unashamedly part. I think I unashamedly <laughs> wanted to win. <laughs> I don't need to ask you. <laughs> yeah, so I went in there thinking, uh, this is the Buddhist in me, thinking, yeah, I've already won. A book of shortlist is pretty good, um, yeah, and I was, of course you want to win. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I was, if someone else won, it would have been fine. Um, but, yeah. so, so what is the first emotion that, uh, it'll be different for each of you, that goes through your mind when your name is called out? Like, uh, you were swearing, Bernadine, like, absolutely shocked. Is it shock? Is it thrill? Are you thrilled? It is terror. Like, terror? It, it is certainly terror. Um, because before that, I don't know if they should have leaked this to us. They tell you, should you win? this is your program for the next 48 hours. And it's like, you win, then BBC Live, then New York Times, then we'll pick you up at 6 a.m. And uh, yeah, interviews around the clock. So you look at this uh, thinking, well, you know, may not be a bad thing to not win and yeah, go on holiday. <laughs> um, so I had that, but you know, I wasn't thinking that far ahead. But yeah, when you win, um, yeah, there was terror. I was like, I got my speech, okay, let's go for it. And then it was just adrenaline and then, um, Phone was, I think, got, I don't know if I, know if I had time for a drink. It was straight into interviews and then whisked away and two hours sleep, your phone's going boop, boop, all, all night. And um, yeah, 6 a.m., they put a sandwich next to you, a cup of coffee, and then it's The Guardian, and then it's The Telegraph. And um, that, yeah, so I was aware of all that in front of me. Um, but yeah, once it happens, you just go with it, and it's only now that, yeah, Things have died down and you can take a breather, but I remember that first week was pretty relentless. You're still on a roll, obviously, though. Yeah, yeah, but I'm getting in. sleep now. This is the key. Um, <laughs> two hours sleep doesn't, doesn't cut it. So, um, yeah, and no, no, it's uh, like right afterwards, I was on a three-month uh, lit fest uh, around, um, around the subcontinent, so that was quite tiring. But then, look, yeah, I think it's... I'd be interested to know when this all stops. Um, I'm, I'm presuming yes, when does by November by I'll be, be able to go back to my boring life and write my third novel, but... Um, you know, the thing is, you get all these invitations, don't you? It's amazing, and they're wonderful invitations, like coming here, for example. So it's very hard to say no, because it may, they may never come around again. So for me, it hasn't really stopped, but that is my choice. 
you know, I've been touring um, since last May because there was also a two-year gap where we were on, you know, COVID and lockdown and so on. So I did a lot of online things. And then when the sort of in real flesh, you know, events started to come back, I thought, yeah, I'm going to exploit this until the end of this year, and then I will choose to shut myself away. Because obviously that's what we do, we're writers, aren't we? We, we need calm and peace and quiet and, and not to be communicating externally all the time. I feel like I've been talking non-stop, actually, since 2019, <laughs> when, I, when I won the prize, <laughs> non-stop. Um, but there are other writers, and I think, you know, um, Douglas Stewart won it with Shaggy Bain. I think he did, I think he said he did 93 cities last year, mm. right? Um, and I know he did loads and loads of countries. So I think it's a choice that you make, you know, at some point you have to cut it off because, because why we're here is because we're writers. Mm. Do you enjoy the uh, extrovert part of it, Eleanor? Or? I do actually, yeah, but I find it very depleting. I, I, you know, I, I heard uh, something about jet lag a, a few years ago, which is that for every hour of difference, it, it will take you one day to recover. So if you go to Sydney and it's two hours different, it's going to take you two days before you feel normal. Or like um, in, in England is going to take you uh, 12 days. And I feel like that about being on stage, that for every hour that I have people looking at me, I kind of need a day when nobody looks at me. Yes. You know, it's, it's kind of, I, it, it, I, I feel very kind of hollowed out uh, after, after kind of a, a performance, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, because it's weird, because you don't, I mean, I don't talk to many people usually. I mean, if uh, um, you're shut in a room, not talking to anyone, talking to imaginary characters, to yourself, cursing, um, and, uh, you know, on a good day, you might talk to your wife and your kids if you're in a good mood. Um, <laughs> and so that's why it's unnatural that you're supposed to, and yeah, the interviews and, and all of that. And I met uh, Damon, he was on some of the Indian tour, and I talked to him, and he, he gave me the wisdom, I think, passed down, uh, from Douglas Stewart, uh, may, may have come from one of you, um, saying, look, uh, you're not going to write another word for the next 12 months, but don't I, worry about I it. Got, I got told that too. Jan Martel told me that. He oh, said, he wow, said, so this has been passed two, out. Two years, forget about it. Just don't even try. Uh, no, don't try for two years, and then, and then your life will be yours again. Yeah, yeah. okay. So this is, this is age-old wisdom that's come down. <laughs> um, yeah, and he said, but don't worry about it. Just enjoy the ride, and you can occasionally say no. But he also said something. He said, no one in the world will feel sorry for you. You can grumble all you want about, oh, I've got 40 emails to answer, and it's like, oh, poor baby, you get to travel to 93 countries, and, and your book's selling everywhere, yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I'm not grumbling at all, but it is, it is exhausting, because it's an unnatural state for writers, and, um, but, yeah, for now, I'm enjoying it, and, um, and it's good to hear that it is a choice that you can then decide yeah, yeah. to lock I mean, I, I feel differently about live events because I have been doing it for a very long time. You know, I have been very much a public speaker for, for decades, actually, and I began in theatre, I began as an actress. So communicating to an audience, I don't really find it depleting, I find it invigorating, actually, because it's the only time, really, that you're in direct communication with your readers. And there's an energy, I mean, during lockdown it was awful, because with Zoom you just talk into an empty space, but actually I feel that I'm getting energy from the audience. Mm -hmm. As I'm, as I'm communicating. But, but even so, as you say, you, know, you have to stop it and get on with the writing. Um, yeah. Well, the prizes, of course, are all about success. The booker is the ultimate in success. But what about the other side of the coin and failure? Um, uh, you, Shihan, said something about, in your acceptance speech, about the writer's life being dispiriting. Uh, and many people wouldn't relate to that, but it can often be, and for many writers it is, that is what it is. Uh, so you have this great success, but do you still have moments of um, failure, feeling like a failure? Well, the third book is not going to write itself. I know that much, and I know whenever it is in six months' time, in a year's time when I sit down, it's going to be just as difficult and just as dispiriting to write, and that, you know, no one forced us to do this. This is uh, our life, so it's fine. Um, but it's also, I mean, writing in Sri Lanka, writing in Colombo, I never, you know, you never, you, you read Booker stuff, and, but you never dream that you're going to get on one of those stages. You're concentrating on maybe this will get published in India, even getting published in the UK, which is the criteria for, for the Booker. You don't take that for granted, and I'm, I'm right up till, I would say, the end of 2021. You know, I thought, you know, I was going to be a one-hit wonder like J.D. Salingo or Vanilla Ice. I thought, uh, you know, I was, because, um, you know, Chinaman came out in 2010 and 
2017, 2018, I'm still struggling with this. And I stopped going out because you get inevitably conversations. So how's the book coming along? How's the book coming along? And um, you know, you, you've taken time between books. And, and I'll say, yeah, when it's done. And um, so I know that when just because, I mean, the success is great, and I know I'm not gonna, I'm perhaps not gonna have any trouble finding a publisher for the next book. But still, the work is the same, and it's hard work, and um, yeah, I'm sure it, I will have dispiriting moments up ahead, but um, of course, it is a fantastic platform. Now, the book is before, you know, my first book did okay, but you know, it was just around the subcontinent. Now, it's a much wider readership. I'm not just having uh, middle-aged men who are into cricket coming to my talks now. <laughs> I get all sorts of arrangers, and so, so it is a wonderful gift, and you have to take it that way. Yeah, but, but, but does it make you think, oh, I'm a great writer, so this is going to be great, my next book? I don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> As I in, don't. I've been given this accolade, this approbation, so therefore, um, you know, I can write. I think that would be suicide to think, oh yes, everything I come up with uh, is going to be genius. I think you have to still apply the same rigor and, and do it that way. I, I guess you have to, um, because like I say, each book is a new experience and a new discovery and you still have to, yeah, it doesn't write itself. But but there must be a, a, um, a fear of the book after the booker. Um, both of you have published books after the book, you, you, you've yet to, but is there, there a fear about that next book coming out? Well, my, so I published my memoir, um, Manifesto, in October 2021. So I won the booker in 2019, and I knew that I was dodging the bullet by publishing a memoir, because you can't compare the two. You know, and also because I had been talking so much about myself, I thought it made sense to write about myself in this book. And, and so that was great. And then I also wrote this little essay book for Tate Britain, the gallery Tate Britain, on feminism in, um, in art. And uh, so that was also a non-fiction book. Mm. I, I'm working on um, something at the moment, which is theatre, and next year I'll get going on a novel. And so it's keep, keep working, keep doing. Yes, and, and you know, I know that there will be voices inside my head saying to me, oh, well, it's not going to be like a woman other and people are going to be disappointed and the rest of it. But I have that with every book anyway. The book before Go Woman Other is called Mr. Loverman, and a lot of people really loved it. And I, when I was writing Go Woman Other, I thought, oh, they're not going to like this. It's not like Mr. Loverman. And so you have these voices nagging at you in your head and you have to get rid of them and just write the book that you want to write and you cannot predict how it's going to be received. You don't know how it's going to land and you just have to trust that you have to honour your creativity and do what you're going to do. Yes. And then, fingers crossed, it may do well, who knows? I, I'm sorry, I must have got the date. Was it 2019? Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry, I said 2016. Yeah, yeah, six okay. years after uh, Eleanor yeah. won. Yeah. What about you, Eleanor? The 10 years is a decade. Uh, how have you feared mentally during those 10 years? I, I, I knew I kind of didn't want to write a a, a, a kind of a book for the establishment, a kind of a, a work of literary fiction. I wanted to, to, to go down a very kind of explicitly genre route with my, with my next book and kind of write a, an, an unashamed thriller. Um, and I think that that was, that, that, that was kind of born out of a, a sense of pressure to kind of not, not, not wanting to, to repeat myself or not wanting to kind of go chasing after something that... Um, I, I don't think you can chase after, in a way. Um, w one of the, the, the kind of the big things that impressed itself on me in the years after the prize was that when, when you're a young writer and a kind of a writer who's just starting out, you're, you're very much a, a liability to your publisher. They, they are, you're very grateful to them to, for publishing you, but you're not going to make them any money. And it's usually somebody else on their list who's, who sells far better than, than, than you ever will, who is kind of carrying the, the, the loss, essentially, that you're, you're going to make for your publisher. And then with something like the um, winning this prize, that balance suddenly shifts. So you become that writer for your publisher. You become the, the asset that then will enable the publisher to publish many other writers um, because you're, you're, you're kind of covering, covering them with your sales. And I found that shift um, Quite, quite frightening. I, I, I went and I, I spoke with my editor in the UK, and I said, I, I really, really please, if I write something and it's not any good, I really want you to tell me, because 
the, I, all of a sudden there was a financial imperative for her to, to, to publish something, even if it wasn't ready, because it, it would make the publisher money, and then, then you know, that would, that, that, that would be a good thing for the publishing house. And she kind of pinky promised to tell me if the work wasn't any good. But then even when I started writing the, the, the book, I, f I found myself really reluctant to, to work on it very quickly. I, kind of, I, I wanted to be very, very sure of it before I handed it away. I almost didn't trust anybody's um, assessment of it because, because there was this new um, commercial dimension to it. It, it. it was going to find readers anyway because of the prize. And so, so I, kind of, I, I wanted to really make sure that it was, it was the book that, that I was proud of having written before, before I kind of released it. Right, a shift in the power base. Right. Um, on the, in terms of the writing process, which doesn't matter whether you've won the book or not, it's the same for all writers, but um, I think I'm right in saying all three of you uh, get other people to critique your drafts. Um, which is something that not all writers um, can do because it's quite a frightening prospect, um, <laughs> actually reading something out or, or, or passing something over to somebody to critique. So who are these people in your lives that you ask to do this? I'll, I'll start with you, Shihan. If you have a great first reader, you should you know, buy them dinner all the time and give them lots of hugs because they're really worth it. Preferably not someone you're in a relationship with. I'd also say that because my poor wife, yeah, she gets a lot of my bad moods and uh, I'll, I'll be sitting there going, how can you say that? And, but I, I do have a few friends that I give things to, but um, I think my great fortune was uh, finding Natanya Jans of sort of books who, um, who, who picked this up. Um, and, you know, because all through it, I mean, I'd gone through my, my first readers and all that, and I knew it was still a mess, and um, it, it had a lot of trouble getting published in the UK. A lot of um, publishers who were receptive to my first book were saying this is very difficult, and, and uh, we're not sure it's going to play with the Western audience. So Natanya Jans is, and, and I guess now everything I write goes through her, but she, um, and we spent the whole pandemic, so the book was published in India as Chats with the Dead, uh, and then we spent the entire pandemic uh, rewriting it. Um, I wouldn't say rewriting it, but you know, just taking bits out, making sure the pacing is working and all that. So that is a true gift. And I think with the first one also I had Chiki Sarka from Random House um, who helped me with that. So I think, yeah, they're very hard to find, uh, but when you find one, you should hold on to them because they're worth everything. So you don't mind handing it over? in those early When stages. it's done, that's the thing. I, I will revise it for months and, I, you know, I, I got this out of a writing workshop. You've got to revise it first from the character's point of view, uh, then from the writer's point of view, then from the reader's point of view. Then my grandma used to say you've got to chew everything 32 times uh, before, before you eat it. It's something similar. You, it goes through the wash four times, and usually I double that process. So I don't show anything until I'm willing to take the criticism on it because <laughs> it's quite fragile sometimes. Yes. And, um, yeah, you don't want... because you. You and your gut know that the thing works, even though it's not quite working on the page. So it's after a while that I do it. I don't just send not first drafts away. to people, no. And Eleanor, what about you? Who is the person in your life that you... Oh, it's my, my husband is, is very much the first reader. Um, yeah, I, I kind of almost can't overstate his, his importance in the process. Kind of, it's, it's almost like, a, I don't know, kind of another person in the relationship in a way that... Um, that the book becomes part of our lives. You know, we, we, we will just talk about it constantly. I, I, I will almost always send him whatever I've written during the day. I quite, I quite often read aloud to him. Um, but if, if, if I'm making this sound like a very kind of uh, uh, mature relationship, it's absolutely not. I'm extremely um, emotionally volatile, very petulant. I'm, I'm very often in tears when he's reading. If he, I, I have very, very specific, but also kind of totally unquantifiable criteria for how he should read it. And so he, um, if I, I really want him Look, to give me... Can you explain further? Well, I want him to give me his sense of it, but I also don't want him to suggest anything, <laughs> any alternatives. And if he does, I will become, I will very often shout at him and run upstairs and slam a door and things. And um, it's, it's very, it's, you know, okay, very, know. very infantile <laughs> behavior. Um, that, that, yeah, that's very important to my process, I think, to be able to, to talk about what my intentions are for the work. Yeah, to kind of, to, to, to have feedback at, at, at every stage of, of the process, really. Do you take his advice? 
Well, um, <laughs> no, 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 very often not. Um, uh, he, he knows all of the places that I haven't, you know, he's, he's got a, his edition where he's put a little asterisk in all, all, all of the places where, um, <laughs> where, where I went my own way. <laughs> um, it's more about um, getting to know the characters as people and saying, I don't think that, that, that they would do this. And then having a conversation about that where, where I feel like my, my perception of the character might be slightly different. So I think, well, I think they would do this. Um, it's so good yes, to have an editor before the editor. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, uh, with Burnham Wood, my uh, recent novel, I, it was edited by a, a UK and a US editor simultaneously. And that was really helpful because um, they, they, they could kind of offer me a perspective of the, the perspective of a UK reader and a US reader on what, what, what was a story set in New Zealand, which was quite helpful because um, you know, a lot of the things that I didn't realize were just, um, you know, they were kind of very ordinary to me, were foreign to a UK reader in a different way that they were foreign to the US reader. And, and it's always helpful to have more than one voice, I think, on your work, because then when they disagree, you can just um, discount them both, which is really nice. <laughs> And Bernadine, do you have a special someone? Yeah, no, I, um, I've had different people for different books. So, um, you know, my first two books were poetry, one was a poetry collection, and um, I had uh, a poet friend of mine look at it and give me feedback on it. Um, then my second book, um, Lara's a verse novel, again, I had poet friends look at it and give me feedback. And with each book, I need different things from different kinds of people. So I've had many people look at my work. Um, my husband also looks at my work. He is extremely honest with me, which doesn't always play well. Um, I know that when I give him my work, he will tell me exactly what he thinks. And sometimes you just want someone to say it's great. Um, and <laughs> you don't always get that with him, but I, but I really do value his opinion. Um, and I, with different books, I show it to people at different stages. Sometimes an idea is too tender for me to show it to somebody until I've really developed it. But then I have spent a couple of years on a book and then ditched it. I haven't showed it to anybody and then I've ditched it because I realized it's not working. I might have spared myself a year and a half if I just showed people what I was working on earlier. But I feel that it has to be my work, it has to be my creativity, and I don't want other people intervening with that. So the stage I will give people my work to read, and it varies from book to book, is when I feel strong enough to handle what they have to say. And so, for example, with Girl, Woman, Other, um, one of my first readers said to me, her response was, well, it's readable. <laughs> readable. Damned with a faint praise. Oh, I teach creative writing, so I know what that means when it's saying, well, readable, right? So, so that, was, that was tough to hear, but it was also at an early stage when it was all a bit of a mess. Um, and, so, and then my book, eventually, at some stage, the manuscript will go to my editor, and he will have his response to it, but he also has an external reader. He might have one or two people who work in the publishing house who also look at it and then he will compress everything everybody says and give me feedback on it. And that might involve major revision of a novel. Um, one of my books, Soul Taurus, it was a prose novel of about 90,000 words. It became a novel with verse of about 50,000 words over a period of four years. There is no sort of clear path for me with my books in terms of how they're gonna turn out, and in terms of how other people see it and the kind of feedback they give me. It's all in a big mix, and eventually the finished work is published. With, with the finished work, um, is there anything about, I'll ask each of you, the book that won the booker that you would have liked to have changed after you published it and won the prize? That has happened with previous books, but I don't think it's really happened with this one. But sometimes the translators in foreign languages see things that nobody's seen, mistakes that nobody has seen, and these sometimes glaring mistakes, oh, and yes. they've just got this really beady forensic eye. And this happened quite recently where a character's, I changed a character's name, surname. Nobody had pointed that out to me in, in like four or five years. All these different translators and my editors, no, copy editors, proofreaders, nobody had seen it. 
I also had that experience with my French um, translator, just uh, her list of, of errors that she discovered in the, in the text ran, ran to, I think, three or four pages. It was so embarrassing. And it was things like, um, I described somebody as wearing a collarless waistcoat, and then two paragraphs later, somebody's grabbing him by the collar to shake him, and it's, <laughs> it's that kind of thing. It's just really kind of moronic mistakes. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know. I think that, um, I, I, yeah, I identify with what you're saying. When, when a book's done, you do, you do have this kind of sense of, it's kind of let you go, or it's, it's, it's become its own, it, it can kind of go off to university. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of become its own soul, you know, and I, I, I find it very difficult to reread my work, actually. I've, I've never once reread my first book, um, and only just reread The Luminaries very, very recently um, because I was contributing, I think, I think you did this as well, the um, pen uh, yes. uh, annotated editions. There was a, an auction of annotated first editions, so we had to go back through and, and annotate our own work to be auctioned. And um, I found it kind of astonishing, actually. I'd totally forgotten huge swathes of the book, and um, yeah, found myself, at some points I was like, oh, this is quite good, and then at other points I was just, I, I physically blushed at, <laughs> at, at, at what, was, what was on the page. It's, it's a very kind of volatile relationship, I think. What, 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 what yeah. have made you blushed about, or blush about the luminaries? Oh, just kind of clunky rhythms or, or things that, I, I, I felt like I could see that I was faking it. But, but, but yeah, but maybe other people couldn't, I'm not sure, yeah. Yeah, but it's, it, it, it's funny with a book because it becomes this kind of time, time capsule of your emotional maturity and your kind of self-understanding and your reading life. And you get older and the book doesn't, but you, you continue to be identified with the book. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, Shehan, yours is relatively new, so mm. all good. But it's been through the mill, though. Um, I mean, returning to the, the topic of receiving feedback, um, and I think Neil Gaiman said, if, if someone tells you there's something wrong with your manuscript, they're usually right. But if they tell you how to fix it, they're usually wrong. And, uh, and in the end, it's your name on the cover, and you can take all this feedback. I mean, there's another saying, if enough people tell you you're drunk, you should probably sit down. And so there, there are bits where certain scenes, if people are getting stuck there and getting bored there, then you know there's something to revise. But in the end, it's you have to fix the problem, and uh, you have to take responsibility for it. And this thing has, I mean, I published it, I mean, four or five drafts, then published it, then I rewrote it. And, um, yeah, I've also had uh, these brilliant translators. Um, yeah, the van that kidnaps people and disposes of bodies, it's white in chapter one, then it becomes black, and then becomes white again. And, um, uh, <laughs> but that like would that. be fitting with your book, that would be all right. The, the white van is quite iconic. I mean, that's a different story <laughs> in, in Sri Lankan abductions. But I feel, aside from those uh, you know, genuine typos, mistakes, I think it's, you're right about that moment where you think, okay, it's not flawless, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's the best I can do, but I think it's what it is, and now I'm going to put it out into the world. And, you know, this, this easier said than done, this detachment. Even if no one reads it, I think I did a good job, I'll move on. You kind of had that moment. Um, and so, yeah, I would not, I've, I think this has been revised enough, I, I wouldn't go back. I, and, yeah, I have not read, reread Chinaman, apart from when I have to do readings. The thing is done, and now it's, you move on to the next thing, so, yeah. Enough revisions for me, I think. Can I, can I just say, I also find it really hard to read my books from start to finish once they're finished. Very, very difficult. I feel very squeamish doing it. Mm. Mm. It's like it's, I know what you mean. It's like you're resuming this really intense relationship that is just very, very difficult. Before you start writing, do you have a reasonably detailed plan and, say, a plot in mind? Or, alternatively, are, what are, are, are you what I've heard called pantses, i.e. writing from the seat of your pants. <laughs> well, I've heard it called architects and gardeners. Um, so the architect plans the whole, uh, you know, up to chapter 20. And, and you know, the, the planners apparently spend like six months on that outline of what happens from 1 to 20. I'm not that. I've tried doing that, and usually I get bored halfway or I can never stick to the plan. So... Pantsers, you said. Um, it's, I, I usually have a premise. Um, I knew it was a dead guy solving his own murder. I did not know how that would turn out and who the murderer would be and what he would find out. But I usually start with a, 
a scene where there's enough conflict and enough questions that I know I'll have, I may not have the answer now, but I'll have it in a few weeks or a few months. So um, yeah, so I sort of jam when I do it. I'm, I'm kind of a bit of both, really. I, I like that Eisenhower quote, which is that uh, planning is essential and plans are useless. Um, that, you know, I think that thinking a lot about the kind of book I want to write, the, the ending that I want to shoot for, what, what I want to leave the reader with, um, that, that, that's essential to the, the, the kind of the writing process. Kind of beyond that, I'm, I'm kind of feeling in the dark. So in, in The Luminaries, for example, the, the, the book opens with a scene in a bar, somebody comes in, sits down, and uh, the person who he's addressing says, okay, well, there's been a murder. And when I wrote that line, I had no idea what, what, what he was talking about. I just thought that would be a cool thing for him to say. And then I then kind of went on and, and, and made that make sense, you know. So I think that it's kind of a little bit of both. Surprising yourself, I, I think, is, is, is important to kind of to keep your enjoyment up um, and to, yeah, to kind of keep your curiosity up as well. I, I, I suppose the other thing that I had with all my books is the title, which is also very important to me before I begin. It has to do with that directionality, I suppose. Yeah, no, I, I very rarely plan or plot and uh, each book is, is kind of written differently. Um, with one particular book, I knew what the end of the book was going to be, and then I worked backwards. But, for example, with Girl, Woman, Other, when I started writing it, I thought I was going to have a thousand protagonists. That was the idea, that there would be a thousand black women in a novel. And then it was reduced to a hundred. And then I, when I, once I got into the writing, I realized it could only be 12, right? So that's, that's, that's very much part of the process. So I am much more organic, and I do feel my way with it. But at the same time, I'm very aware of craft. I'm very aware of what I need to put at this stage, of what I need to put into a novel to make it work. So I'm not really floundering in the dark. I kind of know what I'm doing, but I don't have a plot or a plan ahead of me. And then some writers will have spreadsheets, and as, we, as we've heard, they'll know exactly what they're going to do and where, whereas I like to keep it fresh and very much more sort of dynamic and flexible and fluid. So, Tina Koto Katoa, thank you so much for coming, and huge thanks and round of applause for Bernadine, Eleanor, and Shihan. Thank you.